Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 59 of UAB Green and Told, original air date Monday, November 22nd, 2021. Through this podcast, we are able to share stories from members of the UAB community. You can listen to our previous episodes at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold on Spotify and with the Apple Podcast app, and be sure to leave a written review so we can reach more alumni. I'm Greg Berry, a UAB alum and assistant director in the Office of Alumni Affairs. This week, we will celebrate Thanksgiving across the U.S., and that means food, a lot of food. Many of us indulge ourselves with sweet potatoes, pecan pie, and yes, the centerpiece of the day, turkey. Well, today we sit down with Dr. Suzanne Judd to discuss diets. Tis the season, right? As Dr. Judd will explain, from late October through the new year, we will be smack in the middle of eating season. People are busier in November and December, so they're less likely to pay attention to their diet, less likely to opt for a healthy meal every now and then. And we'll learn how our diets are all different. Our digestion is different, our genes may not be the same, and our cultural norms vary. We have different tastes, and the reality is eating for health is just one reason people eat. Really, the most biggest reason that people eat is because they like the way it tastes. Plus, find out how and why Dr. Judd moved from diapers to diets. Worked for about five years as a, a chemical engineer at the Kimberly Clark Corporation, making that very important consumer product called Huggies Diapers. <laughs> Everybody knows it. They've all heard of it. Dr. Suzanne Judd is a nutritional epidemiologist who specializes in reducing health disparities in chronic disease. Through her research, she has found out how different racial populations have different health outcomes based on diet and other factors. While that's her career now, in hindsight, epidemiology should have been her career choice early on. I loved two things in school. I loved biology and math. Those are my two absolute favorite things. And if somebody would have just told me when I was 14 years old that that's exactly what an epidemiologist does, they take concepts from biology and they use math to predict the, the average of what's happening in people, I would have just jumped and been an epidemiologist from day one. At what point did you start kind of gravitating towards epidemiology? Because you mentioned that had you known as a 14 year old, you would have been right on it. At what point did it become clear? It didn't become clear until I got to my late 20s. I got a degree in chemical engineering uh, as an undergrad from Michigan Tech um, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and um, worked for about five years as a, a chemical engineer at the Kimberly Clark Corporation, making that very important consumer product called Huggies Diapers. <laughs> Everybody knows it. They've all heard of it. Um, and as I was there, it's, I knew it's not what I wanted to do, um, but I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And I started looking around. I thought I'd go to medical school. I had always thought I'd go to medical school um, because I loved a couple of books when I was a teenager, this book in the band played on that's about the HIV epidemic in the United States. You know, again, if I just would have read that book a little more carefully, I would have seen the word epidemiologist over and over again. But it wasn't until I started doing some tours of grad schools that I met one of the characters uh, that's portrayed in that book, Jim Curran, who's the dean at the School of Public Health at Emory, and started talking to him about you know, epidemiology and what it really was. And I knew that was exactly what I wanted to do, that I needed to stop working and making Huggies diapers and go into um, epidemiology. So, you know, honestly, if I look back on it, I have been looking at especially nutrition science literature from the time I was about 16. Why? You know, most 16 year olds don't look at nutrition literature. So what was the draw to that? 
people had so many opinions about it. Every coach I had had a different opinion. I had one coach one year for volleyball. We couldn't eat anything with sugar in the first five ingredients. And I, that included ketchup. I took ketchup out of my diet, which was just awful for me. I didn't know how to eat French fries without ketchup. So um, I, I think that was it. I just, I was a questioning person. I questioned my coaches um, and wanted to see why are they doing this? And that's why I just think that I was curious and I had to know if you're going to force me to not put ketchup on my fries, you better have a really good reason. And I want to know what that reason is. You were in corporate America, you said, for about five years. What was kind of the aha moment of, you know what, Huggies is great, but I kind of want to do that. Was there a definitive time that you remember? There was, there was. And for me, it was, um, I always think that, you know, the universe has a way of forcing you in the direction it wants you to go. And I got transferred to a factory, a factory in Paris, Texas. And I walked in on my first day of work and I had just gotten married and the um, plant manager that I was working for said to me, you know, you've just recently been married and I know you're some kind of rock star up there at the corporate headquarters, but you're in Texas now and you're going to have to make a decision about whether you want to be a wife or a, an engineer. <laughs> I was like, what? Are you kidding me? It, it is, you know, 1999. Is this real? Are you sure that you just said that? And that's what started it for me. It was that interpersonal interaction that made me think, wait a minute, this is not at all where I want to be. And I knew before that it wasn't where I wanted to be, but that was really the push over the edge that had me start looking at medical school again, which turned me to graduate school. And, and that's how I went forward from there. You start at Emory University. What was kind of the end goal? Did you want to do research? Did you want to teach? Did you want to do both? I did not think I wanted to do research. I thought I wanted to teach. That was exactly where I was hoping to go. I had done research uh, as an undergraduate. I actually worked for Pfizer, um, the very Pfizer plant that now makes the mRNA vaccine for COVID. I was working on a dairy cow antibiotic, but I worked right there at that same um, plant in research. And I just didn't like it. I thought it was um, very slow. I thought it was too boring. I didn't want to be in the lab. So I didn't think I wanted to go into research, but to get a PhD, there's always a research component to it. I started working on dietary patterns. I really thought I wanted to do infectious diseases, um, but I got to Emory and um, found out that most of the people in infectious disease already had experience in that area. They had clinical degrees. I just, it didn't, wasn't quite the right fit and talked to a couple of professors and they said, well, have you considered chronic diseases? There's uh, more uh, job opportunities in chronic diseases. And I had this interest in nutrition as well. So it, it just worked out perfect as I started talking to different faculty members. Um, I started looking at dietary patterns for my master's degree. And then when I got to graduate school, like I said, I was always more interested in the medical side of it, learning medicine. So my advisor wound up being an endocrinologist at Emory Hospital, and he was interested in vitamin D. So then I got interested in vitamin D and started doing um, clinical trials related to vitamin D. You earn your PhD ultimately from Emory. You wind up in Birmingham, what was the process like of looking for that postdoctoral place that you're going to continue your career and why UAB? You know, I, I wish I had a story that was like, oh, I had this great process. I had six schools. I had a ranking program. But the truth of it is my husband's from Alabama and I met him while I was in Wisconsin working at Kimberly Clark and he was, oh, I don't really want to move to Alabama. I, I'm never going home. I just want to visit home. And while we were in Georgia and I was getting my graduate degree, he said, you know, I think I kind of want to move back to Alabama. And through that process, I was looking for schools of public health, which really at the time there was only one in Alabama. It was at UAB. Luckily, one of the advisors on my committee uh, was a graduate from UAB many years ago. 
he'd gotten his undergrad and his medical degree from UAB and said, oh, I know some folks there, let me set you up. So I came here and I talked to five or six different faculty members all were fantastic. I loved the um, the excitement that was here. I liked the the way people interacted with each other. And I met George Howard um, in biostatistics, who really got me interested in the regard stroke study. And that's what pulled me over here. The opportunity to use a lot of the nutrition that I had been um, developing, the methods I had been developing and working with at Emory and bring them over here and apply it to the regard stroke study. Let's talk a little bit about that because that's going to segue, I think, into the rest of the conversation. You find a spot in UAB's biostatistics program, you know, from afar, it's like, hey, it's biostats. That really doesn't have a lot to do with nutrition, but there is a correlation. Expand on that and why the two kind of, you know, come together. Yeah, so there, it was interesting as I was looking at where the home would be for me. Again, technically, if you ask me what I do, I'm a nutritional epidemiologist and UAB does not have a department of nutritional epidemiology. We have nutrition and we have epidemiology, um, but we don't have a department of nutritional epi. So as I was looking at the nutrition department and the epi department, uh, there was already a nutritional epidemiologist here at UAB. And George had this stroke study. He said, well, I really need you. I need you to come here. I need you to help me with this data. Um, and it just wound up that biostats was a much easier path to get me into the school and working as a postdoc. Um, so that, that's where I started and it's kind of where I made my home and it's where I've always stayed. I always joke when people call me though, I am not a biostatistician, which is not a joke, it's the truth. <laughs> so don't ask me to do what the biostatisticians do. I've got some great colleagues that can help you out there. But if you have questions about diet and how to measure it, I'm the person you want to call. When it comes to diets, everybody varies. You are different than me, who's different from my wife, my kids. No two person is probably similar. Why is that? Well, we're all very different biochemically. The, um, we're very different in our stomachs. It starts right with your stomach itself and the way that um, food is processed with the digestive enzymes. Then it moves into your small intestine and, and we're also different there in terms of the way our small intestine processes food. We have different tastes and the reality is eating for health is just one reason people eat. Really the most biggest reason that people eat is because they like the way it tastes. It's pretty hard to get people to eat food if they don't like the way it tastes. There are genes that can make you taste food very differently than your child tastes food. So all of these factors play into how someone chooses their diet and, and how they um, how they respond to the food that they eat. Some people wind up with food allergies and um, they may not be the, the kind of allergy that sends you to the hospital. It may just be a, when I eat this food, I get a runny nose and I don't like the way it makes me feel. They may not even be aware that they don't know why they like it. They just know I don't like drinking milk. They don't know why. So it's all of those factors play into preference, to um, cultural reasons, there are religious reasons why people eat various diets, and then also health because they're trying to maintain their weight or um, like I was doing it when I was a teenager, trying to uh, have an optimal diet so I would perform well on the volleyball court. You talk a lot, a lot about the internal factors, but the external factors are incredible too because somebody that's living in Birmingham, Alabama, probably has a different approach or a different diet and a role of the diet than somebody from Kalamazoo, Michigan, where you grew up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Food is different in different places. There are cultural norms, especially if you compare across um, countries, you know, in different parts of, of the U.S. or even different parts of the world. Um, there are just different cultural norms and, and what you grow up tasting when you're young 
can set your palate for the rest of your life. Uh, I spent a lot of time in France, um, both for research reasons and also um, just studying abroad. And they have very different cultural practices with children. They um, they don't believe in snacking. You know, I was over there about three years ago and I was giving a lot of nutrition lectures to undergraduate um, universities is basically what we'd call them here. And the first question I got almost every single time was, is it true that Americans eat all day long? <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, yeah, lots of people do snack. That, that is something people talk about. And then the next question would be, why? How are you hungry for meals if you're eating all the time? The other one I would get all the time is um, coffee. And is it true that Americans drink coffee when they first wake up in the morning? Because in France, coffee is used as a digestive to digest your food after you're done eating. Um, so it, it, it's just different cultural practices change what you um, are exposed to and, and definitely change the way that you look at food. Through your research, what kind of disparities really have popped up between demographics, geographics, and different things like that, that you can kind of look at and go, there's a, definitely a problem right there? So the, the big thing that we took a look at um, probably 10 years ago now, we looked at different dietary patterns across the United States in our regard stroke study. Uh, most people may not know this, but there are big regional differences in stroke. Living in the southeastern part of the country puts you at a greater risk of having a stroke, in particular if you were born in the southeastern region of the United States. Also, Black Americans have a much higher risk of stroke than their white counterparts. So that's what we study in, in the regard stroke study. And we wanted to know, was diet one of the reasons that explained that? So we calculated several different dietary patterns just based on what people were eating. We just set up, we used a data technique so that we could say, okay, if you eat a lot of fried potatoes, what are you likely to eat it with? And then not surprising, hamburgers comes up as something you're likely to eat if you're eating fried potatoes. So from that, we were able to come up with some patterns. And one of them that we saw was a Southern dietary pattern. We called it Southern because it was more commonly consumed in the South than other parts of the country. And that dietary pattern that was particularly high in processed foods and um, higher fat foods, there were a lot of fried foods like fried chicken, fried fish, fried potatoes. It was associated with a much greater risk of stroke than other diets that we saw. Um, when we looked at uh, primarily plant-based dietary pattern, um, we just saw that the, this uh, dietary pattern that was high in fried foods and processed foods was put people at greater risk of stroke. So um, we've seen these regional differences that we've been able to look at in other studies uh, to confirm that, yes, there are some regional differences in the way people eat and how uh, those, those diets might be associated with stroke and heart disease and now cancer. We've looked at it with lots of different outcomes at this point. Can individuals help themselves avoid having a stroke later on by doing certain things as opposed to, you know, always eating fried food, or is it a kind of have to be a cultural shift because it is kind of, you know, the South and people expect that in the South. That's how they eat. Yeah. Um, it, the interesting thing about that study that I always love talking to people about is the fact that it's not all or nothing. The people that were eating those types of food regularly, basically they were eating fried food every day. The people that were eating the fried food less often, they were eating it once a week or once every two weeks. So it's not one of these things where you have to wipe something off your diet. It's just one of these things where you wanna make sure that fried foods are not the primary um, food that you're eating all day long. The, the one thing culturally that we could um, make a change with is salt. There is so much salt in our diet that we don't even know about. Salt that's in the bread we eat, in the cereal we eat, in the frozen foods that we pull out of the frozen section or soup, a can of soup. 
there's so much sodium in the United States. It's not necessarily just the South, but we just have a ton of sodium in our food. And that puts people at a greater risk of stroke because it puts people at a greater risk of having high blood pressure. As we approach the holidays, how should people approach nutrition? They should approach it by um, giving themselves a little bit of grace. You know, it's okay on Thanksgiving to have a nice big meal. Try not to carry it over for the, the week afterwards. Uh, one of the biggest problems that Americans get into during the holiday season is it starts with Halloween. We have all this candy that comes in at Halloween and that just kind of sets off this cycle of having more than you really need to be full, eating things you wouldn't normally eat, and then continuing it to Thanksgiving when we have a huge meal and lots of desserts and um, lots of sides right on into Christmas. And people are busier in November and December because they've got holiday things going on or football games or it's just busy time of year. So they're less likely to pay attention to their diet, less likely to opt for a healthy meal every now and then. Um, my biggest tip to folks is try to find one meal that you can control, that you can be healthy on. For me, it's lunch. When I start to get out of hand, I just go back to eating a salad for lunch. I remind myself, all right, you're in salad season. <laughs> it's, it's November and December, you gotta eat a salad, no sandwiches, um, but that that's what works for me. It may not be what works for everybody else. It may be that there's some other way that you can remind yourself, all right, I know I'm in my heavy eating season, I'm going to um, cut my breakfast in half at this time of year because I know I need to cut back somewhere. Looking at what you have on your plate right now, what are you working on and why is it so fascinating? So right now I'm working at a brand new study in the rural South. Um, we're recruiting people across Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and Kentucky. It's a part of the country that is really understudied. Um, most medical research happens around medical schools. So they're in big cities for the most part. And we're actually taking a mobile clinic down into communities where we can do a comprehensive heart and lung um, assessment. We can take pictures of people's hearts and lungs. We have um, an echocardiogram that looks at how the heart is beating. Uh, we have a very extensive technology for drawing blood and looking at various factors in the blood. But then we also get to be in the community. Right now we're in Selma, Alabama. Uh, we've got our truck set up down there. We're gonna be there for about six months. We're getting to know our community partners down there, talk to people about what, what's going on in Selma, what, what's life like, how is it different than what life is like in Birmingham, um, just to get a feel from people. It's, it's amazing how similar we are and yet how different we are and, and how people approach health in different areas. So that is what I'm most excited about. I love going down there. I love talking to people down there, um, talking about heart and lung research. You know, here in Birmingham, I might bump into my neighbor who's a, a lawyer and they say, oh, okay, well, tell me what you do. And I talk about it or bump into my neighbor who's a teacher and tell them about epidemiology. But in Selma, they're not going to bump into epidemiologists very often. <laughs> it just wouldn't be as common. When you talk to somebody down in Selma in, in the rural areas that you're talking about, how do they react? What is their first impression of you? They're always very interested. Um, you know, I grew up in a rural community too, so I, I really... Um, understand what life is like. I went to a small school. Um, so it, it's great. We compare what it's like in Michigan, talk about what it's like in Selma. And there, there are big differences between um, certainly Selma and the high school that I went to. But it's always interesting to talk to people about those differences, to talk to them about why I wound up in Alabama, what I think of Birmingham. Um, you know, I just find in general, people enjoy talking. They like talking about their life. They like hearing about new things. No one has ever thought about uh, what I do, which is 
get people to come visit my study, sit with me for two and a half hours while I collect all kinds of data and then follow them for the next 40 years of their life. And so they're very interested to learn, why do you want to follow me for 40 years? What, what, what will you learn from this that you can't learn by looking at my medical record? You mentioned that few studies have been done in rural communities. Is that just because of proximity? It's easier to do in your backyard when you are at a hospital in an urban area? It is. It is. If you've got it, if you're in an urban area and you've got your CT scanner and your MRI and all of these fancy pieces of equipment that you need to do a really comprehensive assessment on somebody, that's just easier to do in a place like Birmingham. That's why we've had to build this whole truck. Um, it, we, we pull it down there on the back of a semi and park it, pop it out. Uh, it's got all kinds of um, advanced medical equipment so we can do lots of different tests that you wouldn't get at your standard doctor's office. And it's important to get out there because from the beginning of our conversation, no two people are the same. So you have to go elsewhere to really crunch down on things and really get to know what's really going on. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, um, when I mentioned that I was in France a couple of years ago and I was working with a neurologist who does a lot of stroke work and he said, well, fine, you can come here and study the diet in France, but we are not like Americans. We don't eat the way you do. We, we eat very healthy. We're, we're very um, in shape. You know, you're not going to find anything. And so I did what I do, which is to look at diets and try to come up with patterns and found a pattern. And even in this French diet that was very healthy um, and associated with lower risk of stroke and lower risk of dementia. And I brought it back to him and I was like, well, I, you guys are very healthy, but it turns out there's a really healthy French diet and a pretty healthy French diet. And that really healthy French diet protects you from dementia and stroke. So we had a, a laugh about it, but like you said, it's, um, it's, it is very different in different places and there's no one size fits all, uh, but it's important to study how those factors might be slightly different. Mentioned that the French diet on average is going to be a little healthier than here in the U S what makes a good, healthy American diet? Something that's got a lot of color. Uh, so you want to eat, eat the rainbow, some green, some blue, some red, which, you know, blueberries, um, sweet potatoes. That's a great colored food. You want food that has a lot of color because that's going to give you uh, nutrients that you can't get in things like um, pro like meat sources or um, potatoes or uh, pasta. That's just really all one color. You want to try to work in as much color as you can, which really comes from the fruits and vegetables. You want to try to limit your fat, which doesn't mean avoid fat, but try not to have too much fat on um, a lot of the food you eat, not too much fried food, and try to not have as, as little sodium as you can possibly have. Those are the big things that make for a healthy, healthy American diet when we try to stay away from the, the sodium and the fat and then eat the rainbow, lots of different colored foods. What is the healthiest region in the country based off of the studies that you've done? The studies in, in the U.S. that have shown to be very healthy are these blue zones, as they talk about them. Um, Loma Linda, California is a, a community that has a large uh, vegetarian population, Seventh-day Adventists, and they've been studied pretty heavily. They live for a very long time relative to your average Americans. Um, but honestly, after that, it's it's pretty well spread out. It often is uh, goes along with income. So if you have access to uh, healthy foods and you're able to afford them, it's a little bit easier than if you don't. So there, unfortunately in our country, we have big dividing lines by income. That was another big difference with France. And one of the things that that neurologist was right about in France, food is subsidized. So everybody has access to the same 
um, fruits and vegetables and milks and um, going out to eat because they have food subsidies that you can use your food subsidy. Even college professors get this food subsidy. So it, it just changes what people can afford and what they have access to. With the work you've done in France, the research you did over there, what can you bring from there and put in American diets? You know, the, the biggest thing would be the fat choices. It would be great if we would choose fats that come from nuts, like walnuts, almonds, things like that, and olive oil. That's probably the single biggest choice to make is to have a really healthy food um, fat source rather than fat that comes from meat, um, like bacon fat, um, the vegetable fats like canola and soy oil, avoiding those and sticking with um, the plant-based oils like olive oil and then walnuts, almonds, those types of things, that those fats really can make a difference. We talk all about nutrition, all about staying healthy. What's your cheat food? Oh, which, which time of year? <laughs> I have lots of cheat foods, um, but I do love sweets. I have an incredible sweet tooth. I love cake. Having a healthy diet doesn't mean to totally get rid of that, right? No, mm -mm, not at all. I, I do regularly consume sweets. It's I try to avoid it. And when my clothes start fitting um, not as well as I would like, then I have to start eating salad for lunch every day. <laughs> so that's the way that I um, moderate my diet. But I've talked to so many people. Everyone moderates their diet differently. Some people want to cut back on a meal. Um, some people like me just want to say, okay, it's salad time. Other folks um, want to count their calories with something like MyFitnessPal or an, an app that helps you to count your calories so you know what you're eating. That's Dr. Suzanne Judd. Dr. Judd is the director of the Lister Hill Center for Health Policy and professor in the School of Public Health here at UAB. While she studied elsewhere, she definitely has a good idea of what it means to be a blazer. This is a community that I've gotten to watch do some amazing things. Um, they're so uh, passionate about being a part of UAB. It's, um, it's incredible. And I think it means um, independence. I think it means um, like independence of thought, independence of spirit. It means um, not going where everybody else goes. And it means community. I think the, the Blazers are really connected to each other. Um, once you're here, you know, I'm faculty, I didn't go to school here, but I've been adopted as a Blazer. Students, alumni, they're more than happy to, to call me a Blazer. Um, so yeah, I think for me, it would be that independent spirit and that sense of community. Be sure to listen into previous episodes of UAB Green and Told. You can find all of them at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Spotify, and the Apple Podcast app. Have a story to share? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for UAB Alumni. Thanks for listening, and until next time, go Blazers!